This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and today I've got a guest I've wanted for a few years. I started 12 Songs in 2018, and in 2017, Canadian filmmaker Larry Weinstein made the documentary Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. I love the subject matter because for so long, smartheads tried to discount or throw shade on Christmas songs by saying, you know, they were all written by Jewish songwriters. As if that irony was somehow so crushing that it served as a mic drop. Writer Jody Rosen put some interesting meat on that observation in his excellent book, White Christmas, The Story of an American Song. And Weinstein does similar work in Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. Today, we're going to talk some about that. I did an interview Weinstein back in 2018 because if you didn't have a VPN to trick the internet into thinking you were in Canada, you couldn't see G Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. The song was geolocked, even on YouTube, and it seemed hard to talk about a movie that people couldn't see, even if we were really using it as the starting point for our conversation. Today's conversation doesn't rely on you knowing his movie, but if you're here for this podcast and this conversation, you'll likely enjoy it. Weinstein uses a fictional Chinese restaurant as a setting for a fictional fantasy Jewish Christmas Day with imaginative production numbers featuring Canadian stars such as Stephen Page, formerly of Bare Naked Ladies, and Tom Wilson of Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. These production numbers were influenced by Weinstein's relationship with producer Hal Wilner, who died last year from COVID-19. And for me and many others around my age, Wilner was an important figure, particularly when he released a series of tributes to Kurt Vile, Walt Disney, and Charles Mingus, all with an eclectic talent lineup that often interpreted the material in very unpredictable ways. These projects cross genres and aesthetics, and if this podcast isn't influenced by Wilner's projects, it's at least the result of those records helping me recognize something that I already intuitively knew, which is that genre divisions are really fragile, and that if you stay in your lane, you can miss how the genres interact with each other, as well as a lot of amazing music that uses that interaction as a foundation point. We'll get to Larry Weinstein and Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas in a few minutes, but first, let's turn our attention to Johnny Cash. I try to turn you on to Christmas songs you might not know, which usually also means artists you might not know, and everybody knows Johnny Cash. But Johnny Cash recorded a ton of material. And there came a point where I felt like I received a few too many anthologies and box sets filled with previously unreleased or long unheard songs. Cash had a long, complicated career and it wasn't always clear he knew what he did best. He could be nakedly sentimental and mawkish as easily as he could be an insightful dramatist for the working class. At some point, I wanted to unhear some of the more meh material so that I could have my man in black back. The same is true of his Christmas music. And there's enough of that that I probably should do an episode on it in the future, talking to other Cash fans about the best of his lengthy catalog. I'm a sucker for Merry Christmas, Mary, which I have on the 2003 collection Christmas with Johnny Cash. It collects songs from 1962 to 1980, and it's probably no surprise that I'm more interested in the older songs. Merry Christmas, Mary comes from 1972, and as is often the case with Cash's Christmas music, his faith is front and center. The plain-spoken nature of it is charming, though. As poetry, the song is one step up from saying grace before dinner. And the title's play on the two spellings of Mary may be its sole node to artfulness. He rhymes because that's what you do in a song, not as an artistic flourish. That plain-spoken sensibility and its musical austerity link it to I Walk the Line. And because of that, it always feels like a personal statement in a way that many spiritual Christmas songs don't. This is Merry Christmas, Mary by Johnny Cash. We'll be back on the other side with Larry Weinstein to talk about dreaming of a Jewish Christmas. Merry Christmas, Mary. Thank you for the child. 
Thank you for Lord Jesus. Thank you for the child. Christmas time is here again. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The air is filled with joyful sounds. Merry wishing all around. Giving and receiving gifts. Stopping by to thank all of our friends. And we thank you, Mary, for helping give God's greatest gift to man. For many, it's always a source of great irony that many of the great Christmas songs were written by Jews. But like people talking about it as like ironic always seem like kind of a dead end. What's a better or more useful way to think about the relationship between the idea that that Jewish songwriters wrote so many of the great Christmas songs. Yeah, it's 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 quite amazing when you think about the number of songs, most of which are are kind of secular songs that that Jewish composers wrote about Christmas. And and uh, there's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, The Holly Jolly Christmas. Those are by the same composer, Johnny Marks. Uh, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Winter Wonderland, the Christmas song, you know, chestnuts roasting on, on an open fire. Sleigh Ride, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Silver, be- silver Bells, um, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas, Santa Baby and Baby It's Cold Outside, those, those uh, questionable ones. Uh, do you hear what I hear? Christmas time is here from Charlie Brown. Uh, you're all the Grinch songs. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, but all those lovely uh, Whoville Christmas songs. I mean, I mean, you know, even even Little Drummer Boy, which was originally written by uh, some Christian lady, uh, kind of it was remolded uh, into the song that we know uh, by a Jewish composer. Uh, and, and, and the list goes on. And, and to the point that, when we were making our film, I was thinking, oh, I wish that song was written by a Jewish composer. And then with a little digging, I went, oh, it is. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's that all about? Well, you know, it's, it's honoring a little Christian, a little Jewish boy. It's honoring a, a little Jewish boy named Jesus. Um, but, but, uh, I, I think ultimately, uh, Christmas has become, uh, a holiday about about families and about about nostalgia, about warmth, about togetherness, and I don't think that, that Christians have a, a monopoly on those things. Um, more to the point, I think a lot of the Jewish composers who came over, uh, or at least the Jews who came over in the eighteen nineties, uh, from and were escaping pogroms and persecution, really embraced uh, America. These this is really an American story and. There was meaning in that Statue of Liberty, and and um, and and it was about the American dream. And and these people were very sincere in their warmth and and their their idealized version of what America was or what America could be. And Christmas became part of that. So these come from a very genuine place. They're not just about commercialness. Uh, because I don't think anyone can just say, I'm going to write, write a commercial song. It'll be a commercial song. I think this came from somewhere very deep and beautiful. Mm-hmm. One thing I read that I thought was interesting was that for many of these songwriters, that they thought of it as, a, as sort of a sign of success, that they were able to write songs that defined a holiday and that defined a Gentile holiday. Yeah. Did you find anything to that effect or, or or what did you find or what did sort of was the take you came up with about the relationship between the writers and Christmas? I, I think the success is actually the success of of assimilation, I think, and, and how people came into the land of the United States and, and they wanted to be part of that melting pot. They wanted to. They wanted to say that that I I too can 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 make a musical statement that people can embrace and 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 um, I think that's how the success was was measured. You know, it's strange because I'm Canadian 
And our, our relationship to immigration, for instance, is a little bit different. We, we, we have encouraged, to some extent, people to maintain the, the, uh, and embrace their differences a little bit more. It's not all about that melting pot. Um, it seems like, certainly in the States, though, it's like that, that success is measured in, in reaching people and, and, and creating emotions that, that, that really feel genuine and deep to, to people. And the people were the, the, you know, the Christian people, the, the, uh, Protestants and, and the Catholics and, and, and the fact that that Jews could write music that that pleased everyone, and that that to the and 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 weren't thought of as being Jewish in 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 the process. I'm 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 kind of going all over the place here. I you're asking me things that I haven't actually really thought about for a little while, but it's it's a very um, deep and and emotional and meaningful thing when people can write things that reach a, a large number of people. Uh, in a meaningful way. And I think when it comes to these Christmas songs, it's absolutely meaningful. It's also interesting that in terms of success, you know, some people think, oh, it's about the commercialness. It's about, um, but but these are, a lot of the songs we're talking about are, are kind of like the American songbook. They, they last for decades and, and they're the same songs uh, that are being sung Christmas after Christmas after Christmas. It's not, uh, of course, there are new songs and there are great songs that come, come, but they tend not to have that staying power. A lot of the songs made that were written by these composers seem to last on and on and on. Were there, are there tropes or ideas uh, or emotions that the songwriters added or that the songwriters added to the way we think about Christmas now? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you you ask me that question. I, I often think about dreaming of a white Christmas, and and it was, which of course was Irving Berlin's famous famous song. In fact, the song that sold more copies, I guess, of sheet music and recordings than any other song. Uh, Irving Berlin thought it was the best thing he ever wrote, um, but it, it moves so many people. And and I know here in Canada where it snows. Uh, if if we have a green Christmas, people are get depressed. It's like, what are you depressed about? It's nice weather. It's because we wanted, we were dreaming of a white Christmas. And I, and I'm thinking, is that the song? Is is it the song that changed people's perception of Christmas? Yeah. I, I have a feeling it was. I don't know what you do in New Orleans, though. Dream of a white <laughs> Christmas. We just, we just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> there's other and of course there's the other things too there's you know roasting chestnuts and i think a lot i think a lot more chestnuts have been consumed around christmas time because of the song yeah. <laughs> i I think even something like a song like I'll Be Home for Christmas, which is about a soldier who's he's saying he's going to try to get out of this, you know, theater of war and bring, be home with their, his family where he belongs at Christmas. But I think a lot of, of, of family gatherings sort of have that song echoing in their heads. I'll be home for Christmas, whatever home is, you know, it's it's an idealized, beautiful, warm tension-free home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, that was kind of one of the things I was thinking about was that so many songs, in particular, obviously that and White Christmas are kind of the two most obvious versions, but yeah. where you get this sense of longing from people who want to be a part of Christmas but can't quite do it because they're yeah. not physically there. And I always thought that was an interesting way, you know, you don't know if that's if that's sort of writing in your you know the, the writers writing in their emotions or not, but this idea that there's an event that's taking place, 
and kind of the closest they can get to it is the songs uh, because it's you know, not speci- that uh, because that's not necessarily their their holiday. Yeah, it's funny that though. Though if you think about it, you know when people can't get together, uh, it's still the music. It seems like it's the, in our culture, it's the music that draws people together. It's the fact that you might sing the same song that your parents sang or your grandparents sang, and they they're probably not with us anymore, and yet. The, that that takes on this extra meaning and this extra significance. And sure, you could have the turkey stuffing the way mom used to make or something like that. But it's not the, quite the same as this the, the the warmth and the bittersweetness and the and the just the lovely nostalgia that music provides. Um, and uh, that's why a lot of people want the the original versions of things. Um, even if the original was sung by someone as inane as Bing Crosby or, uh, ah, <laughs> or Gene Autry. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> so one of the things I, I've wondered about, and I don't want to let this get too far away, is growing up, what was your relationship to Christmas and Christmas music? Yeah, I, I um, grew up in a, in a rather Christian neighborhood. Both my parents were born in Brooklyn, New York, so they they had a lot of Jewishness around them, um, and they my father is uh, or was he, he passed away in the course of making this film, and and the film at the end is dedicated to him. He's in a Santa Claus costume, <laughs> all things, you know, with my mother kissing Santa Claus. Um, but he moved to Toronto. He's an engineer and designed one of the highways here in Toronto, the, the Don Valley Parkway, which you would know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, but so he he, um, but he, we moved to a, a predominantly Christian neighborhood, and and so they thought they should have Christmas for us. Apparently, they had Christmas as well. They they gave gifts at Christmas even in Brooklyn, uh, in in the uh, 30s and 40s when they grew up. But um, so I was I believed in Santa Claus. Uh, I didn't necessarily believe in in in, in Christ or. Uh, or his invisible father eventually either, but I believed in Santa Claus, and um, <laughs> you'll have the sense of that. Buddy. <laughs> but um, we heard the music. The, the, the music was constantly playing. They always had channel uh, radio on. There, all those Christmas songs, the same Christmas songs that we heard again and again and again, and got rather sick of. Um, not a lot of them were charming upon repeated listening when you're at about the hundredth listening. Uh, there are a few that, that kind of broke through. It was hard to be upset with, with, um, you know, dream, uh, or at least, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire because just the, the harmonies are just so beautiful and, and little drummer boy as well. Uh, do you hear what I hear eventually, which sounds a lot like little drummer boy. The, the music is just so aesthetically pleasing, um, and, and then there's a personal favorites that I just, I, I was always delighted by uh, winter wonderland. Um, and, and, uh, and it sort of stayed with me for, for my whole life. Um, yeah, I just, it, it's something that, that was ever present at Christmas and Christmas was ever present and, and all my Christian neighbors had their Christmas trees. We didn't. But I, I kind of believed in all that stuff. And uh, I embar- I'm embarrassed to say that I stopped believing in Santa Claus pretty well after, I think, all my Christian friends. I was stubborn. Ah, ah excellent. <laughs> uh, we, I have a, uh, my daughter's eight. And we are still in the, and we've, we've, we've decided our family answer is, is that we believe in Santa. We believe. And it's like, it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what our friends say. We believe, and yes. like let's, you know, because part of why things wonderful about Christmas. I I, I, I said because I'm in the process of writing about this right now. But I love Christmas as a game, and that it's a game that it's obviously first is the thing that we play do as a group, and there's points where we agree on certain things, and that you know we kind of like you know we agree trees decked are, are beautiful. That yes. we, you know, we that we agree that singing together is an is a wonderful thing, even when we're not very good singers, <laughs> and uh, and that there's a whole sort of and that Santa is part of a game, and it's a game we play with our kids and games, you know, and we sort of 
wink and we as adults we play the santa game a little differently but i love this idea of kind of an activity with a whole series of ritualized responses and you can blow the whistle on all of it if you want to but what fun is gained by doing that the yeah. game is far more fun if you choose to if you choose to engage yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think I have two daughters. One is 35, uh, one is 31. The 35-year-old, I believe we told her about Santa Claus that we weren't sure. If, but our the 31-year-old, we still have not told anything. Excellent. So uh, she lives in Los Angeles. I hope there are no cynics out there. <laughs> Are you listening in the lane? Snow is glistening, a beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. All the way in the blue. So you mentioned winter, winter wonderland. Do you have a favorite version? Yes, the one in our film. <laughs> no no i don't i i i i find that it is such a whimsical song it's just the melody it's the 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 um the jauntiness of it i find it somehow weirdly humorous and uh i i used to just sing it with my daughters and and when it was an icy cold night around christmas and we looked went out and looked at christmas lights Sometimes we would just be moved by this, the fact that there's so much snow and then it was like a wonderland and we would start to sing the song and the girls would encourage me to skid so that we'd spin around on the ice, <laughs> while which luckily did not lead to any arrests or worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've always loved that song and, and was very pleased that we opened our film basically with that. That's the first song when this family enters the, this imagine, magical Chinese restaurant, the maitre d' starts singing Winter Wonderland. Since you brought it up, that in the documentary, you stage a number of sort of video-like performances that you then sort of uh, use around, uh, around the different interview segments. What made you decide to stage different musical, ver musical performances as a part of this? I well, I, I thought because of what you're talking about, Christmas is a really magical time. And that's the game that you're talking about. And I, I saw there being a lot of potential joy in this film. And so it never was a question in my mind. Like, on one hand, we were supposed to make a documentary for, for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation about Jewish composers who wrote music for Christmas. But I, I wanted it to come alive. I wanted it to be um, uh, a certain magic realism about it. And I had made films, that uh, musical films, that had that aspect um, in, in the past. Uh, but it had been a long time. And I, I just wanted it to be something really fun to watch. Because I knew there were a lot of sad stories about immigration and pogroms and people escaping very dark things. And, and trying to make it in a new land. And th th there's some very moving stuff or, or the, the, you know, there's, there's other echoes in, 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 in the film that are, that have a certain melancholy about it, but I wanted it to be a real hmm, celebration. And then, and I thought the best way to do that would have these, these recreations or, uh, you know, and and some of the some of the some of the songs that we got are actually I have to say not necessarily great great songs. Holly Jolly Christmas is not a masterpiece of a song, but we sort of gave it to the kitchen staff of this Chinese restaurant, and then and then a Chinese lion dance comes out and does this huge because because it's all said in a Chinese restaurant because Jews go to Chinese restaurants at, at Christmas and 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 so it's all set there and and so there's this big celebration around that song probably to distract you from the fact that the song's not that great <laughs> <laughs> which i kind of and since i'm confessing that I, I should also mention another one that i wasn't i'm not that pleased about as a song and and we didn't know which songs we were going to get rights to sometimes we were trying to get certain songs and and some estates wouldn't wouldn't necessarily allow it so when we got silver bells i thought oh silver bells what a banal song that is but but the arranger um, Aaron Davis 
because we're setting our it's a little complex this this whole film is is set theoretically in 1967 that that's when we imagine this family is coming to this restaurant so so Aaron Davis said ha that's the year of let it be uh, uh, of sorry of Sergeant Peppers and that's the and so Lucy and this guy Dominic so if you listen to our version of Silver Bells um it, it's uh son by Stephen Page formerly of, of, of Bare Naked Ladies uh, it has a real Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds kind of sound in the orchestration and the uh, instrumentation, which is very funny in a way. Um, so that that's one of the best songs in the film, despite the fact that the song itself is not necessarily the greatest. And some of them we didn't need to do so much window dressing with, like the Christmas song, Chestnuts Under Open Fire, that, that Dion Taylor sings. Uh, she's, she's a wonderful singer. Although I guess we kind of went wild with that too. Yeah. I'm just a demented person. I get <laughs> bored. <laughs> what, how much did you have much of a say as to how those songs came out? You mean how we musically how they came out? Yeah. I, I was with okay. the, um, I, I would have discussions with, with Aaron Davis and, and, and we would talk about, uh, instrumentation. I knew that I wanted, uh, for instance, uh, Do You Hear What I Hear, to have a, a broad Eastern spirituality about it. And um, and I even had suggested, because I knew there'd be some ethereal quality, I, I suggested, because they're in a restaurant, <laughs> that people come pick up their water glasses and start doing that sound that you can get from your water glass. Um, and uh, so I, I, I got to have a lot of say, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to use a musical saw. A couple of our songs, if you listen carefully, have this kind of eerie, theremin-like sound. <laughs> but it's actually a musical saw. Um, yeah. it, it, one of the reasons I ask is, in my experience in Toronto, Toronto's one of the most genuinely multicultural cities I've been in. Yeah. And many of these versions feel sort of you know, cross-cultural. Uh, yes. that as they borrow and i and i wondered if sort of just being in toronto and the and you know if that experience sort of bled into your thoughts about what makes certainly what makes good music and obviously and kind of what makes good christmas music i think so i think one of the theses of this film is that it's cross it is cross cultural that that the holiday of christmas is cross that it's taken on a different meaning it's it's an it's embracing humanity because of all the holidays and all the religious holidays that I can think of, it's the one that goes across the spectrum more that, that I think more people acknowledge, whether they believe in the birth of Christ or, or how religious it is. Um, it's not like Easter that has a very grim religious kind of connotation. It's a celebration and everyone can identify with celebration. So yes, we have a very, very uh, multi-ethnic uh, uh, a huge number of cultures are represented in Toronto. And, and so it just felt like a, a very natural thing. Even, even the Jewish community, the fact that we have a, a Yiddish version of Winter Wonderland uh, is, is kind of neat. And yeah, mixing the instruments and, and playing with it. Um, and yeah, all the genres or a lot of genres are represented even. And, and I, I grew up, um, I was very, I've always been very aware uh, at, at Chinese um, New Year of, of uh, the, the lion dances. People call them dragon dances, but they're lion, Chinese lions. And I'd always take my kids to that. And I made a film in the mid 80s about a friend who's um, a Chinese Canadian composer whose name is Alexina Louie. And, and I filmed her in her hometown of Vancouver and during New Year's Eve. And she wrote a piece based on the Chinese Lion Dance. And she also wrote an orchestral piece um, for the Toronto Symphony where she wanted the most ethereal sound sort of going through the airwaves. And she used the water glasses. So I totally stole it from her. <laughs> Now, you know, as, as we're talking about cultures, we, you know, you kind of bring one more to the table because you're a Canadian making a movie about, to a great degree, the Jewish experience in America, about Jews yeah. coming to America and to assimilate. Because the Jewish experience in Canada and the migration to Canada is a slightly different relationship. Am I right? Slightly different history? 
Uh, yeah, it's similar. It's similar in terms of some of the people coming over and, and escaping uh, persecution, uh, ending up in places like Montreal or Toronto, especially uh, in a lot of the occupations, uh, the schmata business, you know, tailors, furriers, um, restaurateurs, and uh, it's similar, but, but um, it didn't have the intensity that the Lower East Side and New York had, which, which kind of brewed. It was like this like like it's not so much the melting pot as this boiling experiment of all these people who who were ready to contribute to every aspect of American culture and um, it seems like it was this um, yeah it's like a chemistry experiment you put all these brilliant people who are so happy to be in one place and and so thankful and they want because it, it's not just Christmas music it's 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 Broadway and it's jazz and it's um hollywood and it's you know so much and and television i uh so so it's the jewish presence was omnipresent you know people talk about the jews and media in a negative way well so much of what everybody watched i mean who would think fred flintstone was a jewish voice or and barney Rubble. right right <laughs> <laughs> let alone archie and veronica and betty and you know uh, or or batman and superman and like oh, like oh my goodness like every program i watched when i was little I, I i sat down and i reevaluated what did i watch what music did i listen to and i realized i don't think i was exposed to anything that wasn't jewish in some way it's it's it was omnipresent but I realize I'm sidestepping your Canadian question. Well, <laughs> you actually kind of walk into another a sort of follow-up piece of that, which is, does is it is it a question, particularly as we talk about the relationship between Christmas music and, and Jews, is it one that kind of crosses the borders? Like, I, yes. as you said before, you know, I lived in you know, I lived in Hamilton and Toronto for about 14 years, and I kind of walked away feeling like, you know, I mean, the American, the Canadian relationship to America is always a complicated one. And there are ways where it often felt like Canada defined itself by not being them. Yes. Yes, but, that's true. But at the, but it's very clear as, as you talk. And I think and it's clear to my, and it seems like my experience when I lived there, that parts of, there are elements of culture that feel very much like North American culture yes. and that because this, because Christmas music isn't specifically tied to national identity, that perhaps it's easier for Canadians to sort of to sign on to that story in the way that they don't sign on to other parts of the American story. No, I think I think you're right. I mean, it is true that a lot of these songs are talking about elements that are very distinctly Canadian, more so than so much. I mean, it's there, there's um, someone like um, Irving Berlin uh, or 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 Mel Torme that both happen to be in California on the hottest days in summer, desperately trying to write about music about cold white days just to cool off according to Mel Torme when he was when he was doing it um and yet that is Canada it's almost like they're writing about Canada so <laughs> and and I I wrote to you uh, earlier tongue-in-cheek but but it's true I I always saw the North Pole as a Canadian part that's in Canada Santa Claus I assume is Canadian I, I you know even Canada uh, even Santa Claus wears red and white so the, the colors of the Canadian flag there's no blue there <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a lot of reindeer here in the snow too i mean it, it felt felt like the americans were looking at canada in order to define what christmas was um <laughs> even the idea of giving out presents to everybody there's a certain social like socialized medicine in the form of gifts <laughs> So it's it's uh, there's a certain uh, yeah I mean we don't always define ourselves in terms of what what you know uh, in reaction against America certainly we were feeling that way uh, with your last president uh, but your present president is is very Canadian <laughs> <laughs> and even worse I, I have the horror to, to report that apparently Ted Cruz was born in Canada. 
Oh, really? Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. In wow. Calgary, which is good for you to know if he ever runs for prez, yes. that you can accuse him of not even being an American. Not being <laughs> not eligible. So that's very good to know. You sent me by uh, an email. You sent me a link to a a little drummer boy bolero, <laughs> which seemed which which I which I, I which a thank you because I really enjoyed it, and and it also it felt like sort of of a piece with the versions of little of uh, of Christmas songs that were that were in the documentary. Um, yeah. What makes in your mind? A good Christmas. What makes a good version of a Christmas song? Or, or let me switch that. What do you yep. want to hear in a Christmas song? Well, this is where. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that I, I just—it's those melodies that are simple enough to sing for for large groups of people. It's funny, you know. I I started to. Um, I bought a saxophone for myself. I've never played a musical instrument, even though I I've, I've made like twenty films about music. People assume I'm a musician. I'm not. But I, for some reason, uh, even though I hadn't taken lessons at that point, I I could play Christmas music uh, of Christmas songs. I could play Christmas songs very easily because they're so utterly singable. They're so simple. They're so. And yet, and yet they are so evocative. And I realized it's, it's that aspect of Christmas songs, things that people can sing very easily, but have really pretty harmonies and sometimes pretty rhythms. And um, I think that the evoking nostalgia is, is something that is, is, is beautiful. It's almost like, some of these songs, you know, a lot of these songs are not that old. We're talking about, oh, it's the American Songbook. It's, it's like a few decades old, and 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 yet there's something timeless. I think it's the timelessness of that music that makes it feel like it's, yeah, that it's been there forever, and that it's part of our fabric and our longing as as, as human beings. It's something at our core. That that's the, what makes a beautiful Christmas song, and and there's a sincerity and an earnestness about that that's genuine. I think it's that genuineness too that, that has to come through. I think people can see when it's it's not about that; it's it's something else. What I was thinking though, when I asked the question, I, I I'm I'm right with you, but at the same time, the versions the versions in the in the documentary, and for yep. instance, the little drummer boy Bolero. They take some pretty significant <laughs> liberties with those yes. pe- those songs as well, yeah. And and I know as somebody who has who every year pulls together playlists of Christmas music for friends and family, and I know there are people for whom the distance I can go with a Christmas song is a lot farther than the distance they're willing to go with a Christmas song. And yes. since you've made the the choices, you know, in the in the in the film. Sure. Are there, you know, we don't lose the thread, but you have, for instance, Tom Wilson sort of shouting a sort of a, a gut bucket version of, uh, of Rudolph. Yes. And, and I wonder, do you want, do you as a, just as a person, like to hear a Christmas song kind of taken a little farther? Yes. Than- yes. 
Yes, I think that's a, a very fair, good question. Uh, something that says worn and, and, and uh, you know, played forever, like Rudolph Rednell's Reindeer. And, you know, if you're in a store and that song comes on, it's like, oh, my goodness, kill me now, because you've heard it so many times. And and so uh, I love that it was sung by by Tom Wilson in this edgy way. And, and also Kevin Bright, who accompanies him on guitar, who's also a, a musical genius. They had so much fun with it. Um, and, and they gave it, made it some, sound like something new. I love when something sounds new. I love that Silver Bells suddenly have this freshness. I love that, do you hear what I hear? I always saw it as a very kind of spiritual and mystical song. So why not push that with a very Eastern instrument uh, to with with the singer, Aviva uh, Chernik? And, and uh, yeah, so it's a matter of pushing limits. I also, I think I've gone to the school of Hal Wilner. Do you know Hal yes, Wilner? Very, yes, yeah. absolutely. So, so I've made two films with him as a music producer. And one of them was uh, Music of Kurt Vile, uh, September Songs was the name of the song of the film. And, and we together, he especially, you know, God, you know, when you get William S. Burroughs to do one of the songs or, or PJ Harvey or Nick Cave or Lou Reed, who Lou Reed, who took the song September Song and totally changed the melody, but gave it a different kind of meaning that was powerful. It, it, it sort of just makes your head open up into the musical possibilities that are, that are there. So yes, I, I, I think that these songs are so well known. There's nothing wrong with going, you know, people used to think it was crazy that, that Bing Crosby sang with David Bowie for uh, Little Drummer Boy, uh, but they did nothing to the music. The music was the traditional arrangement, really. It's just the two voices, the two generations that made people's heads explode, I think. Yeah. So I, I can't let you pass without talking about Hal Wilner for a minute because I, you know, because I, a lot of people I know those that the records that he made between like the Kurt Vile compilation and the uh, stay awake, the collection of uh, people Disney. remaking Disney. And mm -hmm. then I, and I'm blanking on the name of it. The TV show he did at night that was David Sanborn produced and that he had guests like Leonard Cohen and NRBQ um, and yeah. Anyway, but I know people for whom these were were pivotal pivotal records or pivotal sort of things because they did suggest there is no real boundary between genres, um, or that there are there are pathways between genres that are that may not be obvious but they're there. Tell me yeah. about working with Hal. Yeah, I think his TV show was called Sunday Night. It was sort of after night music or something like that. I was going to say night music when you first said. Um, working with Hal was uh, an incredible experience. And, and as you know, he passed away just just over a year ago. Um, he, he uh, of COVID symptoms, uh, he passed away one day after his 64th birthday. Um, and he was onto a world, uh, he, he was, uh, I love working with him. I, I, I found it very meaningful. I, I, we were talking, starting to talk about doing a third film together, uh, prior to his death, um, a film, uh, about the music of someone that I think considered him to be his best friend. I mean, it was Lou Reed, Lou Reed and, and Hal became very, very close, um, and uh, there was talk about creating another sort of huge tribute thing to, to Lou Reed's music. But, um, and your imagination just can go free with, with Hal. Um, you become a kid in a candy shop because you look at every song of, of a particular composer in some cases or genre and, and who would be interesting, which musician would be interesting doing that. And then how would take it levels further because let's get that musician and get them to be accompanied by not the person they're normally accompanied by, but that person, like, like see how far we can do this. And to me, he was the ultimate producer because everybody was on the edge a little bit, but it was so invigorating and it was so, um, and he, all he did was encourage them and make them feel like you can do it. You can do this. Let's just see. It's an experiment. If it doesn't work out, we'll try something else. Let, let's just, uh, 
and uh, we and anyone who kind of crossed his path uh, felt better for it. And I, I, I feel like my my work with him was was the most invigorating, perhaps, of my career. And uh, of course, you know, you, there you are in New Orleans, and Dr. John became very close to him. I um, went to ha uh, to Lou Reed's um, memorial in 2013, and Hal was on stage uh, doing one of the. Uh, he was doing actually a Hebrew prayer with uh, Bob Ezrin, uh, and and Philip Glass was accompanying them on piano. And right in front of me was Dr. John, uh, and he was watching and just moving to the whole thing. And he was already kind of weak uh, when we saw him then. And my my daughter Danny and I helped him, sort of helped guide him to his car and and we were thinking wow he's he's the doctor he he <laughs> 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 um but it was something uh magical uh how had had sort of helped produce that event to to lou and and the people on stage were phenomenal everything everything he touched was was magic i i i really loved how um yeah anyway i i don't know if i sure. really when i was a young man Courting the girls I played me a waiting game If a maid refused me with tossing curls oh, I'd let that old earth take a couple of whirls While I plied her with tears in place of pearls And as time came around she came my way as time came around, she came. For it's a long, long while From May to December And the days grow short When you reach September you're now a few years past this. Now, yeah. how do you, and you said you actually watched it or looked back at it before we talked. What's yeah. your take on it now? Do you, can you look back at it and enjoy it? Or do you look back and like, oh, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have done that? No, actually, I, I do enjoy it. And and um, I also enjoy that so many other people seem to enjoy it. Like it, it ended up being picked up by a lot of uh, stations around uh, or, or broadcasters around the world, like BBC in England and NHK in Japan, uh, countries where these songs don't even, the songs are not even necessarily known that much, but people seem to be interested in the immigration story and the, and the power of that, that, that story. And, and then it was nominated for an Emmy award as well. But, but, um, but in terms of my own watching it, I, I was very, knowing I was going to talk to you. I was really listening to it musically, and I'm very pleased with the musical arrangements and the sound of the music, um, and this decision to to let's let's really concentrate on those performances. And yes, the documentary information is interesting, uh, but let's try to weave it and and ultimately let the music be the thing that that comes through. So I don't mean to be bragging, but I really like the film. Cool, regardless of involved with it or not <laughs> ah, ah, no 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 i think that's absolutely the way it should be like if you that looking back and you know being able to enjoy your work i think that seems that, <laughs> that, that never seems like bragging to me so now yeah. i've seen online a an excerpt uh with a uh, with uh, composer rob Kapilau breaking down the yeah. possible jewishness of the music in white christmas why didn't you use that in the documentary I don't remember. Is it an outtake of our film? Yeah. Or is it? I, I found, I think I found that. Uh, Toronto oh, you know what it is? You know what it is? Rob Capolo is is brilliant. And he has all these um, evenings uh, that he does about why music is great. And he'll have a concerto perform, like like with a symphony or, or, or whatever. And then he'll explain to the audience what makes this a great piece of music? What makes that composer a great composer? And apparently he was so enamored actually of what we did, I guess, with our film that he asked the producers, do you mind if I do this? Like I actually have evenings. Uh, I haven't seen what you're talking about. 
Um, but uh, he he does sort of talk about like there are these little things where the music he talks minor mode, which is kind of a Jewish thing, or sometimes you know there's a bit of a shrug in the music. Um, you know, we were going to do a whole thing. Uh, sometimes we couldn't get the rights to certain songs, but we really wanted the song "Let It Snow," "Let It Snow," "Let It Snow." We thought about that. Eh, let it snow. It's uh, like a Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but to tell you the truth, we we didn't really get the rights for for White Christmas. We we show it in the film in a limited way, but there was no performance of it, for instance. Right. Um, just because the Irving Berlin estate uh, didn't didn't want it, a lot of people didn't know what we were going to do with these songs, and there was almost a stigma about you're going to show that these were Jewish composers for Christian holiday and they, they could see the potential negative, you know, reaction to that. But I'll tell you, we've not had negative reaction to the film in that regard. I, I've made a, a, a Holocaust film, which was very compassionate and, and humane, and it got all kinds of Holocaust denying reaction and uh, stuff like that. This, this didn't get anything like that. And and I could see it happening. I could see ah oh, the Jews are, are exploiting the Christian holiday and all that stuff. They 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 could have that could have happened, but it didn't because there's a, a real warmth and, and earnestness I think about about the film. We all know about Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donna and Blitzen. But I don't know whether you'll remember one little reindeer the family really put down. I think he had a problem. I think he probably liked a little nip once in a while. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. Thanks to Larry for the time and the talk. You can find more on Larry Weinstein's extensive filmography at LarryWeinsteinProductions.com. You can stream Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas through Apple, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll finish with one more from Johnny Cash. This is Christmas as I Knew It recorded live at the Ryman Auditorium in 1970 during a rehearsal for the Johnny Cash Show. I'm not sure an excerpt will really do it justice, but if you're interested, you can hear the rest on your own. Talk to you next week. One day near Christmas when I was just a child, Mama called us together. Mama tried to smile. She said, you know, the cotton crop hadn't been too good this year. There's not a lot of spending money but at least we're all here. I hope you won't expect a lot of Christmas presents. Just be thankful that there's plenty to eat. That'll make things a little more pleasant. And us kids got to thinking how really blessed we were. At least we were all healthy. And most of all, we had her. Roy cut down a pin oak tree and we drug it home, Jack and me.